podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And remember to include the name The Scoreless Sort of Podcast in your application. Thank you. Man there trying to stop Joe from getting himself into further trouble. It's a fucking disgrace. It's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Welcome to the Scoreless Thriller podcast. I'm Alex and joined as always by Leon. Leon, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. And we've got a we've got a guest today. We're joined by Manny, Manny Jasmine. Manny, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi Alex, hi Leon. Thanks very much for inviting me. So Manny is the the host of the BBC World Football podcast and a football journalist, sports journalist with the with the BBC. Um at, at this point, I think it would be good for you to sort of uh, introduce yourself a bit further for our listeners. So I kind of, what is your sort of sports journalism journey or how did you kind of end up in, the, in that field and working for the, for the BBC? Well, I've been a journalist for um, almost 20 years now. Uh, and I was freelance for the first half of that, um, combining um, sport, uh, or mostly working at the BBC, combining sport with uh, other other issues. Um, but I've been um, working exclusively on world football since 2011, um, and uh, I've been a reporter on the program. I've been a producer, and now I'm lucky enough to present it. Hmm. Yeah, from what I really enjoy about listening to the BBC, like the, to the World Football Podcast, is the sort of variety you get from week to week. You know, uh, when I tune in, I don't know whether that's going to be about Namibian football or it's going to be about Brazilian or something else. You know, I just think the variety. How do you sort of try to bring those stories together? What is your kind of thought process when you kind of source the different stories that you want to cover on it? Well, our aim is always to uh, tell people something they don't know or they might not know. So we avoid really talking about uh, the Premier League or the Champions League or the big five leagues. Um, We do sometimes, but very rarely. So we won't, you know, we won't go into depth about Frank Lampard getting sacked this week. Um, We won't go into depth about Liverpool's problems and all that stuff um you know because it's the program's called world football and um luckily for us in terms of telling people something they don't know uh most people concentrate on the on the list of things that i've told you that we don't want to talk about so that gives us about 99 percent of football uh to work with and um so it's uh you it's just a question of um, being tuned in to what's going on in the world uh, and just having a, having a, it's, it's not, it's not a sort of thing you can, I don't think it's the sort of thing you can 
do if you're not really, really interested in it personally. Um, you know, to just go there and sift through uh, football in, in low-profile areas of the world. You, don't, you really have to want to know and care about what's going on in, in, the, uh, in the corners of the football world that don't have a light shining on them all the time. Luckily, I am that interested. And, and um, when yeah. did this start? Say again? When did this start, the, the interest in football? Oh, well, it, well, I suppose when I was in primary school, when I was uh, eight or nine, um, you know, my friends and, you know, playing football in the, in, at break time and things like that. And then uh, I suppose because I, was, I wasn't born here, I was born in Iran, I wasn't born in the UK, so I've always been aware of um, of being uh, kind of not being from anywhere really. So that's given me an awareness of of the world. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, the sticker albums that you used to get. I had a sticker album for the nineteen ninety World Cup, and um, in the where this where you put the stickers, there was a little bit of information about the player, who they played for, and things like that. And I was just, I thought it was so exotic to hear about all these clubs around the world that I, I had no idea about. And um, ever since then, really, I, I wanted to know about them. And so really, what I'm doing now is, is pretty much what I did when I was a teenager, just finding out about football all over the place. But luckily now, I can talk about it on the radio. Yeah. And um, what has been with some of like the stories that you've really enjoyed covering over the past year or so I've listening in to the podcast something I've, I've really enjoyed the recent uh, reuniting of Pat Nevin Namibia with Pat Nevin Scottish <laughs> yeah that was uh, that had nothing to do with me actually that was the producer who uh, plucked Namibian Pat Nevin out of the air uh, but in the last year I mean when the pandemic happened we did think what are we going to talk about because you know all football stopped but of course, football is just like everyone else. They, we, it was a great leveler, actually, the pandemic in terms of everyone's lives, because it didn't matter if you were uh, a, a footballer in your own sort of, uh, I was going to say bubble, but I meant bubble in the, in the pre-pandemic sense, as in just kind of locked away in your own world in your gated mansion, or, or if you're just an ordinary guy. Um, everyone was going through exactly the same thing. And so we had loads of um, material to work with. Um, and because everyone was sort of caught out by the pandemic, and nobody really knew uh, what to do about it. Um, the club press officers uh, weren't, weren't anywhere near as, uh, as strict and... Um, suspicious and controlling as they normally are so we were able to call up these players at home and just talk about the things that were affecting their lives which were exactly the same things that were affecting everyone else's lives and I remember one guy a Spanish footballer who was a, he was a journeyman really and his club was in Thailand uh, but he couldn't he went to Spain for, for Christmas in 2019 and he couldn't get back to Thailand because of uh, because of their lockdown in East Asia and he happened to have a pharmacy degree and his parents were pharmacists, they're quite elderly. So he just started working in the, in the pharmacy and he yeah. was serving all these people. And, you know, Spain was at that time, this is sort of April time, was gripped, was very much in the teeth of the pandemic. And there were no masks, there were, there were no uh, protective equipment. And he was there, uh, you know, facing all these people every day, trying to give them medicine, trying to give them help. His wife was heavily pregnant. Um, he was training at home uh, by lifting up um, five liter bottles of water. That was his training um, in the evenings while he worked in the, in the pharmacy by day. It was, it was an amazing story. Um, uh, but there were lots of stories like that. And, 
you know, as I said, you know, we were all, wherever we were, whatever we did, we were all kind of suffering in the same way. Yeah, there's this common frame of reference that you then suddenly have. Um, but, but there's also some sort of difference, right? Because the big leagues, for example, in England or Germany, they can afford to have testing all the time and to invest in the infrastructure to create this kind of safe zone within the stadiums and within the teams, which is probably not the case everywhere in the world, right? That's true. I mean, it, the picture has changed um, with testing. Um, and, you know, once once testing became a thing, then um, it, there was definitely a, a discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots within football. Uh, I mean, you know, women's football, nothing happened in women's football for a long time last year. Uh, and as, as, you, as you rightly say, you know, I mean, in England, Premier League clubs are tested every week. I think they're doing it twice a week now. Whereas lower down, even still in professional football, um, there are hardly any tests. And it's only when clubs were tested because they were in the FA Cup that they uncovered so many yeah. cases of uh, coronavirus. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the familiar old, uh, old lines of, um, of uh, those who have and those who have not emerged within the context of coronavirus. But to begin with, everyone was in the same boat. Yeah. Mm, exactly. I I also wanted to bring up. So I read um I read an article about you which says uh, the um that the first line in your CV reads uh, the first male journalist to be allowed into any kind of women's football in Iran. Would you be able to tell how did that come about? How were you how were you able to uh, have this sort of claim to fame, or how was this this situation arise? Well, this was um, I think it was back in two thousand and or 2005 uh, I went to Iran and um, I went to I was trying to interview uh, the old uh, Iranian striker Ali Dai because um, he was about to become the first man to score 100 international goals and uh, I interviewed him and uh, he did it um, in some style he went from 98 to 102 in one match uh, but while I was there, I thought, well, what about women's football? What, how, who, who plays women's football in Iran? And uh, I was put in touch with a coach of, uh, of a club in Tehran. And I called her up and we had a chat. And I said, well, can, I, can I come to one of your training sessions and just um, do some recording? And she said, well, how are you going to do that? You're a man. And I said, well, there, I think there are two reasons why you should let me. One is that I've come all the way from London, and two is that I can't see anything because I'm blind. And she sort of thought about it, and she said, "Fair enough, all right then." <laughs> <laughs> Solid arguments on both. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so off I went. Um, my male relatives were seething with jealousy because uh, you had all these uh, young girls running around in. in shorts and t-shirt and uh, and I was there although um, the great leveler was that um, I couldn't see them just as much as they couldn't see them because they were <laughs> I was um, and um, so that's how it, that's how it happened and uh, you know protocols her person the coach's personal protocols um, didn't change I mean she didn't guide me anywhere she wouldn't let me uh, hold her arm. Uh, she would just sort of shout. She would walk ahead and shout to make sure I was following her that way, uh, which I quite respected, actually. Um, uh, but nevertheless, um, there it was. Yeah, it's an incredible story. <laughs> like speaking more, more, more generally then, so we're going to move on to our, the main topic and why I wanted to get in touch in the first place, which was you wrote this article for the BBC Sport website, which I encourage everyone to check out about the historic sort of uh, peace, attempted a peace match between Iran and USA in 2000. Now, the two teams met in the World Cup in 1998. Do you have any specific memories of either that game or, or the game in 2000? Well, yes, in 98, um, I was 
I watched it on TV in England, and uh, it was if it hadn't been for Iran, the way the, they qualified for that World Cup, that would be probably my best football memory. But Iran qualified for that World Cup in remarkable circumstances uh, when they uh, they beat Australia on away goals. Um, and you should do a podcast about that um, separately. But uh, that was amazing. And that, that I, I think all Iran fans who remember that time would put that as their favorite memory but in, in what way i think i don't remember iran got a late a late goal or was well it was it's just because um i mean in just in terms never mind the build-up and uh what went on in the build-up uh but i mean there were, there were no fifa days uh, at that time in 97 and so the asian world cup qualifiers happened every week between September and the end of November. It was like a league, but the prize was qualifying for the World Cup. And uh, Iran were, at the halfway stage, Iran were top of the group um, on course. But then, as usually happened, all, you know, put Iran, it put Iranians together for long enough and they'll all fall out. With them. <laughs> so they all fell out and uh, the coach was sacked. Um, and then they, they, they had a, after all these games, but eight, eight weeks of games, home and away, they had a playoff, a one-leg playoff against Japan in Malaysia. Uh, and it, it went to extra time. It was 2-2. And Ali Dai hit the post in the uh, 119th minute. And from the rebound, Japan counterattacked, went down the other end and, and scored the winner with the golden goal. So, and then six days later in Tehran, they played the first leg of the final playoff against Australia, which finished one all. And a week later, they went to Melbourne and played Australia in the MCG. 90-odd thousand people there. And in the first uh, 10 minutes, being conservative, Australia should have been 5-0 up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were. They only went 2-0 up. And then a fan ran on the pitch and pulled down the goal net. Which, which called, and this this was a guy who it was a guy called Peter Hall who uh, made a habit of of disrupting sports. He was he was everywhere, right? I think I remember yeah. some Olympic thing as well. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He, that come was I've never did. heard of him. <laughs> and, uh, so he ran on, pulled down the goal net, and uh, stopped the game. And and that's re- really that was the turning point in the match. Uh, Iran only had three chances in the game and they scored from two of them and they went through on away goals uh, anyway I, I, I said I wasn't going to go into it but I just had <laughs> no please <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, anyway that's why the uh, win over the United States at France 98 was the second best football mm. moment in our, in our memories yeah. um, but that was I mean you know before that game in, in France 98 uh, obviously, that was a hugely sensitive political match um, for all the reasons that have, have been pretty much the same for the last 40 years in terms of the enmity between Iran and USA. But, you know, before the game, Bill Clinton gave a presidential address uh, just because of that game. And... You know, the players, the Iran players, you know, if you if you look it up on YouTube, you'll see all the gifts that they showered the mm-hmm. Americans with. And in that game as well, I think America hit the post three times. Mm-hmm. But with Iran ended up winning 2-1. And inside the stadium, I did a report about this match a few years ago. And inside the stadium, um, there were different Iranian factions in the stands people who were monarchists, people who, who were, were sort of Republicans as supporting of the current regime, another group that hated both of those first two groups, and they were, all, they were all having a go at each other. They weren't even, a lot of people weren't there to support the football team. And so, and that, that, trans, you know, that um, transmitted itself to the players. And so it wasn't a very happy occasion for the players because of that reason. Um, nevertheless, uh, after that game, 
a friend of mine called Mehtad Masudi, who was uh, the FIFA media officer at, at the match, um, met up with, or he bumped into uh, Hank Steinbrecher, who was the general secretary of US soccer. And he said, well, let's do it again. And uh, Hank Steinbrecher said, well, he's, he said to me, he said, well, you know, Mehtad wanted to do it for, for humanitarian reasons and building bridges and all that stuff. Hank Steinbrecher said, look, they kicked our ass. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was his motivation, and uh, eventually uh, they had to overcome so many hurdles and barriers, and so many people who didn't want the game to happen in the United States. But they, but they stuck at it, and they, and they got this game on that hardly anyone knows anything about because it's just friendly. It was a friendly. Uh, uh, in, in a January when the USA usually takes sort of second string players. Um, and I mean, this was back in 2000. Uh, you know, there was, I, we, my parents didn't have internet at home. Uh, they certainly didn't have any kind of satellite TV that showed it. So I knew it was on, but I had to wait a week to go back to university to go online and find out what the score had been. Well, yeah, I think the uh, only footage uh, I could uh, find uh, on 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 YouTube was like there's like a 40 second highlight package yeah, and then that's yeah. that's it. I know. Yeah, it's remarkable when you think of it now. You could, you know, you could watch the game in about five different languages on various illegal streams. But yeah. uh, no, in those days I, I had to wait a week to find out what the score was. <laughs> But but the people organizing the game were they sort of were they like what kind of effect did they think the game would have? Did they think that it would have actually a major effect on diplomatic relations? Or well, I think I think they were really kind of inspired by the World Cup game because the World Cup game, you know, did um, it, I mean, it didn't change the political atmosphere, but it it certainly uh, brought the societies together a bit closer together the iranian and the american societies because there were so many iranian fans in the stadium who were you know who 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 don't conform or did it didn't conform to the stereotype of uh you know hardline islamic uh you know doer um very sort of cold people that that seems to exist amongst, you know, for people who don't know anything about Iranians. Um, so, you know, that kind of broke the ice, really, was for, for a lot of um, Westerners in terms of how they viewed Iran. Uh, and I think, I think the guys who came up, I think Mehdad and Hank, who came up with it, just wanted to sort of, they didn't want it to, to end there. They wanted it to happen again and, and see what could happen. But the difference was that with the World Cup match, it was all, it was the World Cup. It was, it was FIFA's thing. It was in the uh, framework of um, this behemoth tournament. Iran would never um, boycott the tournament to avoid playing the USA. Uh, never, ever. So, so it had it had to happen, and it did happen. Whereas this was just a friendly. This was down to will, the will of of so many different people, and that was totally different. Um, originally, they were going to play the game in '99 in Washington, but that was a big no-no for the Iranian government. Uh, and when I say the Iranian government, I'm really talking about the supreme leader, because the president uh, has fairly limited range of powers um, you know everything comes from the supreme leader and having a game you know he didn't want Iranians to go to Washington you know the home of the White House um, to play there it was, it was symbolically sensitive uh, so eventually they settled on on a tour a three-game tour of California uh, Iran also played Ecuador and Mexico and uh, and ended with uh, with the USA in the uh, Pasadena Rose Bowl. But 
before they, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it like it was just a question of people getting their diaries together. And mm. sort of, yeah. But it wasn't at all. I mean, there was an issue of... Uh, of fingerprinting Iranians when they when they got to America, all Iranians were fingerprinted and photographed. And the Iran the Iran side said, "No, we're not going to do that." So if that if that's going to happen, then we're not going to come. So then U.S. soccer had to go to uh, the administ the Homeland Security and say, "Look, can you waive this?" And they wouldn't waive it. Uh, and I'm not entirely clear on this because people have been quite coy about how high up the chain of command it went mm -hmm. before it was uh, before it was waived. But I think it the feeling I get was it went up very high in the US administration to get this waiver. So they got this waiver and uh, the the Iran team who flew to Chicago uh, via Frankfurt, and uh, there's a guy called Tom King who was basically the U.S. soccer's fixer. And you know, they had a if they had a friendly, he would sort out the hotels and and all that stuff. And he went to Frankfurt to meet the Iran team, and he, he got there. And uh, one of the players said to him, who was who was based in Germany, said um, that. I just have to go and give my key back to, back to my landlord because I'm moving house. Uh, is that all right? <laughs> he said, what are you on about? We're, we're in the transit zone. If you go out, you won't come back in. <laughs> so, what happened then? So, I mean, you have to remember, Tom was there with, with lots of privileges and yeah. lots of security passes. So he negotiated with the that this guy can come back but he also wrote just jotted down a, a sort of uh, a disclaimer that is if, if this doesn't work out it's not my fault so so this so the player went off to, to see his landlord uh, <laughs> get his deposit back <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah hopefully yeah. I mean you never know and then about 20 minutes before they were due to board um, the, the desk said to Tom that half of the delegation their tickets hadn't been paid for and uh, tom was thinking well who's going to pay for it and this was uh, like two or three in the morning us time so he thought well i can't call anyone no one's going to answer the phone now so he thought right what's what's the limit on my on my credit card and am i going to get this money back and uh, he just went for it and he, he paid for it himself that's quite an investment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk, talk about making sure you put the receipt somewhere safe <laughs> so you can take it back. Uh, so eventually got them on board and they flew, flew to Chicago, got to Chicago. They were going through customs. First guy in the delegation turned up to uh, immigration and they said, right, I need your fingerprints. Oh, no. And, and then the head of delegation said, right, you lied to us. We're, we're going back. We're not staying this. And Tom said, no, calm down, calm down. And he just sort of whipped out this letter that he had from, from someone from Chicago immigration to, to get them through. So they got through without any problems. And then they started this 10-day tour. Um, they played these two games. They, they had a bit of tourism. You know, they went to they went to Universal Studios and they went to uh, Disneyland and uh, did loads of shopping, um, things like that. Um, but as uh, the, the closer the game got, uh, the more tense things became. And they, some of the players and the coach were getting calls to hotel rooms saying either offering bribes for them not to do the match or threatening them if they did. The head of the Iranian FA got a call saying, uh, if you go ahead with this match, we'll make sure your flight home doesn't make it, things like that. Uh, and this was from a group that nobody had ever heard of. It was just a, a quite spurious group. and. Uh, I think they were traced to somewhere in Texas in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the head of the FA, Safai Farahani, said, 
well, look, you know, everyone in Iran knows where I am. They've always got, they've all got the hotel number. If they want to call me, they can. You're not calling on behalf of them. I don't believe you. Yeah. I've got a theory that uh, the the sponsoring of the game by Budweiser was the issue. So the U- U.S. soccer Hank uh, Steinbrecher, whom I mentioned earlier, he said, "Look, don't worry, we can get another sponsor." But his counterpart said, "No, you know, you sign this deal with them. Uh, we're both professionals." Uh, you go ahead, carry on with with Budweiser as the sponsor. Nevertheless, the FBI took these threats very seriously. So they had a they had a decoy Iran team bus outside the hotel, which they filled with random people and drove off to the stadium on the day of the match. And the the actual Iran players uh, they smuggled through the hotel kitchen and into the, the underground car park where the actual team bus was waiting. And they followed a bit later on. So en- you ended up with two buses, two Iran team buses at the at the stadium. So action-packed. Wow. Yeah, I know. Was, and this is just for a friendly. And um, what I found particularly chilling, and I didn't know until I, I'd started to research this article, was that they were afraid that someone might fly a plane into the stadium. And this is uh, what, 18 months before 9-11 happened. So they shut off the airspace mm. around the stadium so that nobody would fly, would, would fly into the stadium. And, you know, by all accounts, outside the stadium, the atmosphere was amazing. People were making kebabs and everyone was uh, mingling and uh, you know, I think I think all but a few hundred fans were Iranians. It absolutely just because there's because there's a huge uh, Iranian community in Los Angeles, right? I think there is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at least half a million people live there. Um, but they also came. I mean, I, I spoke to a fan who, who flew there from Colorado, and he was saying, you know, in Colorado you hardly see any Iranians, but every time I turned a corner, I saw a bloke I knew. <laughs> Who had also gone there. And after all of that, after all these events and uh, problems, it was only, a, it was only one all. <laughs> you think the players just kind of should have done something to, to create some kind of memorable scoreline. But Although it, it does sound very diplomatic. It's, it's, it's almost fixed, do you feel, if it's yeah. one all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, I spoke to one of the guys who's on the bench for the USA um, I interviewed him about something else last year, but I said, by the way, I'm doing this article. And he said, um, I can't even remember if I paid. So well, that's how memorable it was for them. Mm. But how about for the Iranian players? I mean, for them traveling over to America, do they have many misgivings about the tour or the game taking no, place? No, I don't know. I mean, in that squad, a sizable chunk of those players were already playing in Europe. Um in fact, one of the other, one of the players, the captain, was already playing in in America. He was playing okay. for New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. So, you know, there was no question of you know defecting or or being starstruck. I mean, they you know they as I said, they went to Universal Studios and Disneyland. But you know, people who'd never been to America, many people would do that. Um, you know, they were never going to defect because they had too much to lose because. In Iran, they were superstars, well-paid, and as I said, many of them already lived in Germany. So mm. um, why do you have to go to America when you're already living in the West? I don't, I don't think, I don't think um, it was a, a big deal in that sense for them. And I don't think, uh, I'm sure they, they weren't as um, uh, affected by the significance of playing the USA as, as you know, as observers might have thought them to be uh and as i say in terms of the games they were very low-key i mean they played ecuador's under 23s mexico's sort of b team and the b team from from the usa so it wasn't you know they weren't they weren't games that had huge profile around the world 
Hmm. But but they were politically incredibly spicy. Um, but but beyond um, the um, restraints or the doubts within the regime or within the government of of, of Iran, um, how were the reaction within the society there? I mean, before the match, but also afterwards, was it even a thing after the World Cup 1998, like another friendly match? Or did people actually... Um... Well, yeah. I have, I've never heard anyone bring this second game up. Okay. You know, the 98 World Cup was huge. Uh, the, the game that they played there and, you know, people flooded the streets afterwards and celebrated and all that stuff. Uh, this game would have been, I suppose, around midnight, something like that in Iran. And, you know, some, you know, people will remember it happening, uh, but it, it has no place in their personal histories of, of Iranian football. It's, uh, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's not in the list of uh, momentous matches that Iran played. Mm. Yeah. As, as somebody who spent much of your life living out, outside of Iran, what is your kind of personal or like um, relationship to the national team? Do you find yourself desperately watching their results or does it, as time goes by, you're less connected? Oh no, they. You know, I I have my club and I have my national team, and Iran are my national team. Um, you know, I I think as time has gone on, uh, I've been less committed to their friendlies and things like that. Partly because they happen in the middle of the day in the UK time, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm busy working. But uh, no, I mean, I was. Um, I was in South Korea when they qualified for the uh, for the Brazil World Cup, and um, you know I was choking back tears in the in the press conference after the match. Yeah. Um, I no, they and in fact I, I I went to the the last World Cup for work and uh, paid for tickets um, from from a tout watch Iran's first game against Morocco and uh, it was an awful game, it was a terrible game. Iran won right at the end 1-0 and I did cry then so uh, no, I'm, I'm very much invested in the national team hmm. How are they doing at the moment, what is their how are they doing at the moment since the last World Cup? Well it's all a bit kind of everything's kind of ground to a yeah. halt pandemic but they're in they're in a bit of a pickle actually uh in terms of qualifying for the next world cup um they the, the top two from each group at the current round goes through to the next round which is which is the final round yeah uh, they're currently third uh the 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 thing that's in their favor is that there are four games left and and three of them are, are in iran Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose playing in an empty stadium that, that sort of takes the edge off that. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, they need to they need to pull their fingers out and stop messing around because uh, they're, if they're not careful, they'll be knocked out. Mm. But from the people that you spoke to about this uh, Iran USA game from 2000, what did they say for like its legacy? Were they did they feel that it had had some kind of impact, or were they just like, oh, it it happened and people went things went on as they had been i think they recognized that they were quite naive to think that it would have a legacy or it would have some kind of humanitarian impact because it didn't uh but i think they're very proud of the fact that they got the show on yeah and they made it happen because it, it was quite a feat to make this happen and uh, and you know in, in a weird way they they sort of brought the two governments into each other's orbit because they were at some level both working on on this on this project mm. you know either to try and stop it or or try and help it go ahead um no i mean it, it didn't have a legacy um as i say it was, it's an it's a match and, and, a, and an occasion that 
you know, has passed out of memory uh, in terms of football fans around the world. Um, and I think they're sad about that, but I think they're, they're proud that it happened. There was talk of a rematch of the USA going to Iran. And these, these were, in those days, you know, Iran's president was a, was a reformist. Um, Bill Clinton was, uh, was coming to the end and, you know, he was open, more open to diplomacy than uh, Donald Trump certainly was. And so there was, you know, the, this, it wasn't unrealistic to ask the USA to go to Iran. And there was a tournament in 2001 in Iran called the Civilization Cup. And it was a 14 tournament. Uh, Iran were there, um, Egypt, uh, a couple of other, it was basically, you know, the old, the old world, all the, all the countries. Yeah. Civilization. And they were going to invite Greece and the USA were going to be representing the new world. Uh, but I think they um, they asked the their appearance fee was too high, so it didn't happen. But it, it could have happened. And there's a, there's a sort of there's a sort of outstanding return date that hasn't been filled. And there are still people in U.S. soccer who are working there now, who were working there when this game went on. So it may well be that it's a, it's a it's an itch that needs to be scratched for some people. And yeah. you knows in the next four years, if there might be a possibility to make that happen. Yeah, might not have gotten more likely in the last couple of years that this could happen, I guess. Well, I think I think I think it's been I think it's been more it's been less likely in the last few yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are whispers that I haven't really been able to substantiate that there are a game might have gone ahead in Qatar a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, it didn't. And then, in fact, I think the game was supposed to happen last year. I think it was mooted two years ago. It was supposed to happen last year. But then uh, the USA assassinated uh, uh, Iran's top general, and, and they were actually supposed to have a training camp in Qatar this time last year. And all of that was rearranged for yeah. security reasons. So it's unlikely, but you never know. Hmm. Just just speaking generally, in, in your experience of covering sort of stories which deal with kind of, uh, if you like to imagine it, like the diplomacy through football, do you, is there some examples where you feel that it has actually had positive effects or do you feel like it's usually just the game happens, everyone shakes hands and then it goes back to exactly how it was before? Well, I think I think most of the time that is what happens. I'm afraid. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Rildo, who was the who was the former captain of Santos when Pele was playing for Santos, and uh, you know they they were going on all sorts of tours around the world, and he said that they went to Nigeria, and uh, you know they were a bit worried about their safety because it was the middle of the Nigerian civil war and the generals met with Pele and they said no no don't worry you'll you'll be safe um we're gonna we're gonna suspend the war while you play and then after the game when you've gone we'll carry on again <laughs> and he said well how do I know that's going to be the truth that's true and the general said no it is true because all the generals want to go to the match <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, football did have some sort of uh, <laughs> brief, <laughs> briefly, yeah, stop the war for a little while. But you know, p- politics is uh, goes so much deeper than than a match or or a tournament. Um, that you know, I, unfortunately, I, I think it it's uh, simplistic and naive to think that. Um, you know, the next, you know, politically sensitive game that happens will have some kind of lasting impact on, on, the, the, on the two countries' political issues. Hmm. Yeah, uh, but maybe if it goes beyond a single game, if it's more about sports in general or football in general or these huge events that you have um, when you've got a football World Cup or maybe... 
um, the Olympic Games. Do you think that on the greater scale they can have an impact on international cooperation, people getting to know people from different areas of the world, of interacting with them? Or do you think they're mostly just used as propaganda tools to show a certain vision that you want to be seen of your country uh, to, to the world? Well, I, th I think, as I said, the, the game between Iran and USA in 98 had that uh, uh, impact. It did sort of open people's eyes up to Iranians and, uh, you know, they, they saw Iranians as being fun-loving and, uh, you know... Cheering the team on. Yeah, yeah. Excited yeah. about the match, having exactly the same feelings. Yeah, of, exactly. And a thing. lot of Iranians, um, you know, had had the Iran flag painted on one side of their face and the USA flag painted on the other side. Yeah. So I, I suppose that did. Um, but in terms of, you know, a sport... You know, even in the Olympics, Iranian wrestlers meet USA wrestlers uh, usually in the, at some stage in the Olympics and, and boxing and things like that. And, you know, these things, these things come and go. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not an aficionado of wrestling, but one of the USA's biggest names, uh, which is a name that I've forgotten, so that's... <laughs> No worries, no worries. He's probably not listening to this podcast. If he's listening, please don't email us. He'll be so offended. I can't remember his name, but I can remember his Twitter feed. His Twitter handle is all I see is gold. Oh, that's a very memorable. Now I see why you remembered that one, not his name. But you know, he, you know, he's very flamboyant, very cocky American, and he's been to Iran to, you know, to take part in. Competitions, yeah. and he said, oh, yeah, I love Iranians and things like that. But that doesn't that's, doesn't really cut through because you're talking about forty years of political enmity yeah. and suspicion. And, and just because a wrestler says he likes Iranian wrestlers, it doesn't really make any difference. I, I've I've got his name. He's Jordan Burroughs. So that's Jordan Burroughs. If, yeah, if that's... you're listening, please yeah. don't come and put me in a headlock or, yeah. or Manny for that matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> by Jordan yeah. no it's true but but I guess with yeah the story does tell, tell though that it's always interwoven right these sports events that even if it's just a friendly match between or just a friendly match um, between Iran and the US it definitely plays on different scales and different levels and you have political actors dominating the turn of events and everything right I think the politics affect the the fixture more than the other way around. Actually. Okay, yeah, um, definitely. I mean, as I say, it took a, it took a lot for this game that we're talking about to happen. Uh, so the so the build up to it was was significant, but the aftermath was was pretty non-existent. Although to some extent it is a political gamble, right? You can, of course, you can facilitate the match and make it happen, but then, at least that's the idea. You don't know what comes out of it, right? as in the final results and how this well there out. is that there is you know there is the issue of um of, of you know the, the potential of being embarrassed by by losing um i think as i say at the time in terms of this america iran going at the time the atmosphere was a lot more conducive uh to this sort of thing i think you know iran would never play israel um and i think the, the potential for losing, even though it'd be unlikely because Israel aren't very good, um, the potential for losing to Israel would be too much for uh, the current regime in Iran to, to risk um, agreeing to the match. Yeah. Uh, I mean, apart from all the other things, apart from the fact that they don't even recognize Israel and, and Iran, Iranian athletes aren't allowed to compete against them. If you, think, if you sweep that to one side, I think, you know, potential for losing and, and being embarrassed as they would see it uh, would, be, would be too much for them to sanction again. But isn't that also somewhat of a beauty of your job um, that through covering football somewhat away from maybe the mainstream, you get to use it as a vehicle to also talk about the politics, the societal oh, yeah. issues and everything that happens around the world. Absolutely. And, and working on... Um, 
on the world service, you know, which is a, essentially a news network uh, covering the world. I mean, you know, these these issues are all are on the world service all the time. Um, with the issues of uh, of politics and geopolitics and things like that, and and you know, football fits into that framework, and it always has from from right at the beginning when when international football was take, being taken seriously because. Um, you know, nobody around the world really cares who the prime minister of this country or president of that country is and what their policy is on this or that. And, you know, being realistic and being brutally honest, um, not many people really care about refugee camps and who's in there and why they're in there. But the football team of the national, uh, the country's football team is something that people can relate to and, and understand. And so, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why um, games become tied up with politics because you know it's one flag against another and you don't really think about the the nuances of the, of the politics behind it you just see oh wow Iran against America and it's almost it's all it, you know it's almost dressed up as a kind of war itself and you almost yeah. expect you know the people in the build-up to start talking about who's going to attack who first it's just a football match but because it's it's flag against flag. It, everything else that exists between those two countries is rolled into this uh, into this pie, and it becomes more than a match. Hmm. No, I, I completely yeah, I understand. I think that's a very well good way of putting it, Manny. I think it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the on the podcast, and it's been really interesting going a deep dive into this into this game. What interesting? Uh, if you want to plug any interesting projects or what's coming up and do you, are you working on at the moment uh well uh, not much alex to be honest with you um you're talk we're talking on a monday yeah. we record world football on a thursday so um this question was really better um better place for a wednesday evening <laughs> we'll call <laughs> you again then <laughs> <laughs> somebody's uh, a bit of a crammer it feels like that is a very fair point yeah but how, how can people find find you? What is your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at BBC underscore Manny. Uh, and um, our programme, World Football, is available as a podcast that usually comes out every Thursday evening, uh, UK time. Um, and... Uh, we're we're on various times on the world service on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. But if you want to listen to the program, and I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> Likewise, download the podcast. All right, Manny, thanks so much for your insights and uh, telling us your story today. It's been an absolute uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Podcast Network.